what are those things that we have now available that are renewable uh, that can be worked in quite a different way into the economy of the United States. Which are concerned primarily with the design of nuclear power plants and this type of thing. We do not know what the magnitude of the side effects will be. Hi, I'm Pamela Wildstein. I'm Wyatt Makadonski. I'm Ben Hilborn. I'm James Gordy. You're listening to Intermediate. 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 To Intermediate. Intermediate. The place for people trying to get into or already working on distributed energy resources and clean energy. This is the podcast that makes it easy to learn how the grid actually works beyond the obvious. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I'm your co-host, James Gordy. Today we have Pam. Hi, Pam. Hi. Uh, And today this is going to be a bit of a two-part episode. So in part one, we're going to cover FERC and interconnection kind of generically. And then in part two, we're going to cover the hot off the press in energy terms, FERC order 2023. And then kind of after that, we're going to spend some time and look forward to where things are going from here. And joining us on the show today to help us level up our game, we have CC Coffee. CC, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Happy to be here with you and Pam and to talk about interconnection. Okay. Um, so just jumping into it, um, we always like to start with some icebreaker CC. So uh, play along with us a little bit here. Um, you personally, this is a show about learning about clean energy and DERs in general. How do you learn about clean energy? Well, thanks for asking. Honestly, it's something I've thought a lot about. When I got out of undergrad, I moved down to DC, uh, which is a great place in the country to be working in energy. But I was really trying to learn as much as I could as quickly as I could. So I was reading Utility Dive and other trade press. I was attending conferences and panel talks. And I also joined the Clean Energy Leadership Institute in 2016 and have stayed involved with them since. So I think for me, learning about energy isn't just reading, it's also talking with people. And that's why I'm excited to be on the podcast and also to have been involved in DER Task Force, because I think when everybody gets together, we have some pretty cool ideas about the future of clean energy. Yeah, no doubt. Always the the obligatory DER Task Force shout out on the show. Always. Got to do it. So moving on to the second one then, there's a lot going on in energy. Um, what portion or topic are you most interested in? right now and learning about? Yeah, there are a few. You know, on a large scale, I've always been interested in how high voltage transmission gets planned and built. You wouldn't think of that being clean energy necessarily, but you know, there are a lot of examples going back to CRES in Texas and others about how building transmission really gets new generation online. Um, And on the smaller scale, I've been really excited to see how clean tech companies uh, have been able to unlock distributed energy resources, not only to provide demand response, but also dispatchable power following, you know, Octopus and others who've been doing Um, virtual power plants. And then one thing that I don't know that much about, but I'm curious to follow is just this kind of rebirth of nuclear, whether it's large-scale commercial or the small modular and micro micro reactors. Uh, I think those are so interesting and kind of the way that they can do community energy maybe in the future. And then I know we had asked you ahead of time, CC, for some deeper dive resources if people are curious. So for anyone following along with the podcast and online in the show notes, we'll put all of those links there and links we found helpful. Um, so kicking things off, um, at a high level, like, can you explain what FERC is and why they have authority? We touched a little bit in a FERC overview that Pam gave on our great overview episode, but like good to unpack it more here. Okay. That's great to know. And for everybody who's listening, who I haven't met yet, uh, I'm in law school right now. So please forgive the, the brief detour into legal history, but I think it's important to understand what FERC is and how it came to regulate the transmission system. So Going back uh, more than 100 years, actually, Congress in 1920 authorized what was then the Federal Power Commission to oversee the nation's hydropower resources. And the Federal Power Commission was formally established in 1930. But it was five years after that in 1935 when Congress passed the Federal Power Act, which transformed the Federal Power Commission into an independent regulatory agency. And it granted that agency the authority to regulate, among other things, the interstate transmission system. And that's really generally the same same jurisdictional authority that FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, has today. Its interpretation of that authority has changed and evolved as the system has changed and evolved. But uh, on the transmission side, at least, FERC regulates all transmission between states and as kind of by virtue of that, the transmission that happens at high voltage and bulk power systems. So who are the stakeholders in the interconnection process that Order 2023 is going to be regulating? 
Sure. So there are actually a number of players here. It's it's who you'd guess, right? The project developers. Those are the people who are building, owning, and financing new power plants, new generation resources. And it's the transmission providers who are receiving their requests to those project developers to hook up to their system. But there are also other indirect stakeholders. Transmission customers should care because they're the ones who ultimately pay the costs that the transmission providers pass along. And we're transmission customers ourselves. Those rates uh, that we pay to our local utility cover what the utility pays to the transmission provider to get energy off of their system. And states should also care. States have policy priorities. They're trying to get a lot of different types of resources built. And if those resources are uh, you know, proposed but can't actually get interconnected and can't reach commercial operations, that's really going to slow down states who are trying to maybe meet their 100% renewable energy goals. And in this case, just you know, because when I was first reading through the order, I got a little confused on this. Transmission providers in this case are both in restructured and non-restructured areas, right? So it's both the independent system operators slash regional transmission organizations and then also monopoly utilities. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I should say, you know, you all are pretty familiar with this. I know it's a bit of an alphabet soup, but uh, Pam, when you're saying restructured areas of the country, you're talking about those parts of the country where generation is separate from who owns the transmission and distribution systems. And as you pointed out, those are operated in many cases by entities called independent system operators or regional transmission organizations who not only dispatch the systems, but also operate the markets for buying and selling energy in those regions. But there are parts of the country, as you mentioned, that are not restructured. They still have, for the most part, vertically integrated utilities that own generation, transmission, and distribution. And they're also transmission providers and need to comply with these rules. Because one thing that I could have mentioned earlier is that FERC's jurisdictional authority over transmission, I said, was the interstate system. But really, any transmission provider over a certain megawatt threshold uh, is FERC jurisdictional and needs to comply with with some of the transmission-related rules, like order number 2023. And James, you can say it. What is restructured and non-restructured uh, translate to for you? Yeah, in my mind. Um, <laughs> what is it? No, deregulated and regulated. Um, Pam and I had a whole conversation where we were trying to like simplify this in people's mind. And at the end, Pam was actually using my words, but then you know, <laughs> we, we mind-tricked her into it. Um, and that was my question too, just to like unpack transmission providers. So Pam, we're on the same page today. Totally. I think the way I think about it, honestly, Pam, we can come back to this. is just that whoever physically owns the grid and that grid is a patchwork of different systems that are owned and operated by different entities. And I think sometimes it can get confusing to think about, well, who's in a region and who's operating independently? Because all of these systems need to be operating at the same frequency and overseen by the same reliability regulators in the end, that being FERC and also NERC, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. But I think it's worth noting that even though they all operate together as one seamless machine, they're owned by different entities. And those different entities are the ones who are responsible for processing requests to put new generators onto their systems. So those are the transmission providers that I'm talking about. Those are also, this will come into play later, the entities that maintain open access transmission tariffs. Those are the sets of rules for not only interconnecting onto the transmission provider system, but also for taking transmission service as a transmission customer. So at a high level, CC, um, this is covered in other places, but I think it's helpful to give people the foundation. Like, how does interconnection work today? You know, we hear about it. We hear about the fact that there's so much new projects in the interconnection queues that it would kind of it's like more than is actually on the grid today but like can you speak to what it is at a high level for us yeah absolutely and i totally agree i think it's easy to get bogged down in all of the details about interconnection but historically interconnection is just a three-step process it has a number of sub steps but it, i think for me it helps to keep track of these as, as stages so the first step is that a prospective interconnection customer submits an interconnection request and what that means is you have a new facility you want to interconnect it to the, to the grid, and you need to submit a request to the transmission provider who owns and operates that grid to start the whole process. And then the second step is that that transmission provider assigns a queue position and conducts technical reviews. And this is something that we'll talk a lot more about later in this episode, and especially the next episode, is what is a queue? And honestly, you can think about it like waiting in line at the grocery store. The first person in line lines up, and the next person in line gets in line behind them. And so that queue is something that we talk about when we talk about power plants and are connecting to the grid. It's the same sort of wait your turn system. And then the third step is that both parties, both the prospective interconnection customer and the transmission provider, 
Once the transmission provider has conducted all of those technical reviews and determined what's necessary physically from an engineering sense to interconnect that uh, power plant into the grid, then they execute an interconnection agreement, which is a bilateral contract where they both make certain commitments and that interconnection agreement is what green lights the interconnection of the new resource onto the grid. And at this point, there's no guarantee that you'll generate power, right? That comes later through whatever, I'll stay with restructure because that's what I know what the best, that would come <laughs> sure. through the market. Yes, definitely. I mean, your dispatch instructions, again, will come through the market. Uh, there may even be a different provider. It may not be that transmission provider who tells you turn on or turn off. Um, but really the interconnection agreement, again, I think of it as the green light. You're cleared for takeoff. Everything's in place that needs to be in place for you to start injecting electrons onto the grid. And there are a number of different factors that will determine later how often you do or whether you do or for how long. So roughly how long does this interconnection process uh, take from beginning to end? It's honestly pretty astounding. The average right now is about five years, although that number can vary a lot. It depends not only on the size of the facility and the region of the country, but also on the unique topology of the transmission system. And I didn't get this number. Uh, researchers at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab put together a really comprehensive guide to interconnection queues that they published in April of this year. Uh, I'm sure you all can link it for the listeners, but yeah, LBNL has done a great job outlining not only how long it takes from interconnection requests to commercial operation overall, but how that varies in different regions of the country and even for different types of resources. That's crazy. That's I did not know it was that long. People would always complain about how long it was, but wow, five years. Yeah. On average, five years. Um, my world is like startups and technology. And <laughs> when you have an employee join, you give them equity to like kind of vest because you want them to stay at the company for a long time. And yep. the equity normally vests over a four-year period. So it's okay. less than an interconnection queue average process. Less than an interconnection queue, right. So if someone complains about how long it takes for their equity to vest, you can just point them to this report. <laughs> That's right. Um, Actually, this is not making it into toasters because at this podcast, we like to try to translate numbers into the number of toasters. But it does take five years to do a PhD. So it okay. takes a PhD to for this interconnection process. Right now, but as, as we're going to talk about later yeah. in this episode, that is, that's a long time and it's long enough that it's slowing down not only project development, but also state policy goals. And so one of the goals of broader interconnection reforms of which order number 2023 is a huge part is going to be shrinking that five years into a more manageable amount of time. Maybe we can make it into two years, which would be a master's. No guarantees, but we're, we're well on underway. That's, that's for sure. Just chipping away at the problem. Um, so one thing that I think is a little bit confusing to folks not as familiar with the interconnection process, these studies, right? We need to study it and we need to study it again. And if one little variable changes, we need to do some different studies maybe. Could you kind of unpack these interconnection studies? Like why do we do them and what do we learn from them? Absolutely. So um, again, historically, this was done project by project. And as you alluded to, uh, if that if that line changed, if that queue changed, if someone ahead of you decided to go, go go back and get another item for their grocery cart, then all of a sudden everything changes. And I think it helps to just start from a really high level. We study the interconnection system to determine whether there's enough spare transmission capacity to accommodate a new generator, or whether the system will need to be upgraded before new resources can interconnect without compromising reliability. So what that means is essentially, is there enough headroom on the existing transmission system are the capacities of the existing transmission lines in the area where you're trying to put a new generator um, at capacity? Or is there space? Is there additional uh, megawatt capacity that would allow more electrons to be pushed across that line routinely? And if there is enough space, then it really speeds some of the interconnection. The interconnection generator will still have to go through studies, but they may not be assigned those costly network upgrades that you may have heard about that can really jeopardize a project's economic viability. And if there isn't enough space, then that's where uh, network upgrades, as we're, as we're saying, are assigned. And a network upgrade is essentially when an interconnecting generator is told that the existing transmission system does not have enough spare capacity to facilitate their participation. And so if they do want to get built, they're not only going to have to build their own facility, they're also going to have to build or at least pay for the transmission provider to build upgrades to the transmission system to make sure those electrons can get from power plant to customer. Yeah. And then like one tricky thing I was listening on a Dr. Volt's podcast was talking about like, it's almost like musical chairs or on luck of the draw where like, if you are the person that like 
is going to require the transmission upgrades, then you get stuck with the cost. And so people are like trying to not get stuck with the cost in a sense. And that causes a lot of people to going back to the grocery store analogy, maybe get out of line if they realize they're going to have to pay extra for their bread. Yeah, I may have pushed the grocery store analogy too far, but I think it's a, I think it's something to make it a little more concrete, right? And I totally agree. The musical chairs piece was one of the big reasons why FERC in order number 2023 and several regional transmission organizations on their own before they're required to decided that this one by one processing wasn't just inefficient, it was also creating incentives for people to, if not intentionally game the system, uh, at least deal with delays and cascading restudies that led to some of these really um, really long gaps between interconnection requests and commercial operation. And so I think one big change, which we'll talk about later, was doing the whole process by group by group instead of one by one meant that there was a little less of that luck of the draw, that you would be assessed for uh, you know, how many network upgrades needed to be built as a group collectively, and then the cost of those upgrades would be shared. And so it was a little less that you would get really lucky and get away with having headroom on the system and not have to pay anything. And, and it was also less likely that you would get stuck with a bill for 10 people's interconnection. Uh, going off that, uh, what has FERC done in the past? What's the history of interconnection and what are the FERC orders that it relates to? Sure. So it's really not as long a history. We talked about the history of the Federal Power Commission earlier, and that's a hundred year period of history. But the process of FERC managed interconnection procedures is, is actually pretty short. So before 2003, interconnection procedures were fairly inconsistent across the country. Each transmission provider generally had the authority to determine the procedures that it thought could work for its own system and to manage that, that uh, set of procedures. But then in 2003, IEEE established technical standards for the first time, first for small generator interconnection. And the same year, FERC issued order number 2003, which established, established federal interconnection rules for large generators. And you can look at those online. Um, but for the next 15 years, FERC largely approved incremental changes to transmission providers' interconnection procedures. And FERC also established rules guiding the provision of reactive power and frequency response from interconnecting generators, things that we can all think of as really needing to maintain uh, the reliability of the system more so than managing this queue process. But in 2018, five years ago, FERC issued its next major reform of interconnection procedures. That was order number 845. And 845 was designed to enhance the interconnection process, both to account for changing technologies and also to facilitate additional generator interconnections. The energy transition was already well underway in 2018, and these queues were getting longer, wait times were getting longer. And so FERC took action to try to raise the floor and make sure that transmission providers across the country were complying with certain more rigorous minimum standards to make sure that they were trying to process generator interconnection requests. Um, but 845 did leave several gaps. It retained the serial queue process that was contributing to queue backlogs. That's that one-by-one -one processing that we've been talking about. And 845 also maintained a standard that transmission providers only needed to make, quote, reasonable efforts, unquote, to comply with study deadlines. And that's important. That means that there's really no binding deadline by which the transmission providers need to finish their studies. And that really contributed to uncertainty for interconnecting power plants about exactly how long it was going to take to figure out both what their costs would be and when they'd eventually be able to start reaching commercial operation. And I guess one more thing I'd say about 845 is it included pretty anemic penalties to back up those flexible deadlines. If transmission providers didn't turn around a study in the 60 days that were required or 90 days that were required, it was kind of a shrug, you know, okay, well, try better next time. And that was something that also really contributed to some of the queue backlogs. And, as you can see, these are problems that uh, FERC was realizing as, as we were heading into 2022, 2023, we're maybe going to need to be addressed again. Yeah, real quickly before jumping into the next question, um, totally okay if we don't know or if it's random or whatever the answer is, but like, can we speak a little bit to how these like numbers and the names of these orders get generated? Like sometimes, favorite right? Question. Order, order 2003. <laughs> that is my favorite question. <laughs> do you know the answer? Like, is this, Pam, do you have a surprise for, for us? Like, I mean, 2003 is pretty straightforward, right? The chair does twos. I know that uh, actually former commissioner and chairman Chatterjee cleared this up with 2222, right? The famous CER aggregation order because he explained that those numbers were actually a combination of the birthdays of members of his family and, and told everyone publicly that the, the order number is up to chairman's discretion. 
2003, I think you guys can see it was issued in 2003. I think that one's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Another pretty common one is uh, order number 888, which ensured open access to the transmission system was named after the new building that FERC moved to in DC. It used to be on North Capitol Street, but it moved one block over to First Street Northeast at 888 First Street. So that was one that commemorated the move. So sometimes they're fun, sometimes they're random, sometimes they're tied to the year, but yeah, no serial order for those. Wait, is there anywhere? Yeah, 2023. Order 2023 right. came from, because this was such a big deal. Came from 2023. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Wait, is there anywhere online that lists all the orders and how they got their name? No, no I have a I document though where I keep track of it though. Oh my gosh. Pam, we need to publish that. No. It's just like a no. random like it's, Google Doc somewhere secret. that I started as a joke. <laughs> That's what intermediate's all about. What would Indy want you to do, Pam? Do we want to get this out here or is it just your own no. Google Doc? It's my Google Doc. <laughs> Actually, it's it's not my own Google Doc. It's at the bottom of my typed up law notes from when I took energy law. That's but fair. I will say that when I learned Order 888, uh, the exact like line when my professor opened you know opened the discussion on it was, you know, it was an important order because they named it after their address. Yeah. It, it seems when you look at the history of the interconnection processes and for the amount that FERC's regulating it, that they're almost moving towards more standardized processes and i'm thinking in the context of rtos like the rto taking more of a planner role and i think clements brought this into her discussion too who's clements sorry commissioner clements i'm thinking of how back in 2000 there was this goal of the isos transitioning into rtos which is where the name difference comes from and the rto was going to be this large centralized operate system operator system planner and the switch to you know, the R in it was that they were going to plan the transmission system and they were going to take a much stronger role in having the centralized system that they were going to operate. And when you start to, when you go from, I, I didn't realize that it was in 2003 when they started to do these interconnection procedures and I guess maybe an attempt and maybe it was just because of IEEE, but like an attempt to make them more consistent, that just feels like that push to have more centralized planning entities for a more complicated system. I think that's definitely part of it. And I can't say that these are connected. This is just totally, you know, out of left field here. But what else was happening in 2003 was the Great Northeast Blackout. I mean, there might be other things that were happening that led FERC or others. I think 2003, the process for that rule was already well underway at that point, but may have added some urgency to figuring out um, if there were additional resources that were needed on the system, as there may have been, right, in, in 2003, as um, loads are continuing to increase and more people are looking to interconnect, it might have just been more necessity. And I think one other thing that's important to keep in mind is that the ISOs and RTOs themselves are pretty new. I mean, the New England Power Pool, I think, was the first one in the mid-1990s, and then NISO, you know, organized and others over the course of the late 90s and early 2000s. And so I think one of the reasons that may have prompted 2003, and again, this is just my opinion, is that you have all of these organized markets that are still pretty new. And I think FERC was still trying to figure out what its role would be and how it could help ensure efficiency in the interconnection process and also provide some certainty to interconnecting generators. And to your point about standardization, I think in theory, one reason why you might want to have standardized processes is to remove an incentive for power plants to want to build only in one part of the country to make sure that any resource that was built across the country would generally have the same expectations and would generally be put through the same paces in a way that might kind of democratize access to the grid. I think that, that's hmm. what I would guess it would be, but I have no idea. Yeah, a question I had, um, if I could ask. So... You know, FERC orders come out, it seems like I've been in clean energy maybe three years now. So, you know, we've had 2222 and 2023 since I've been here, you know, kind of following it since COVID. Um, is it like, it's probably transparent, but is it worth talking about? Like how they decide which issues to tackle and orders to do in what order? Because obviously there's a lot to work on and I'm sure there's some big process by which like orders get issued, but curious like how that prioritization and like order creation process happens it's at the discretion of the chair right 
Yeah, it is. But that's what I was going to say. And oh, you've heard some recent chairs talk about this, right? Chairman Chatterjee, I mentioned. Chairman Glick has been pretty outspoken about his priorities. And now uh, Acting Chair Phillips has also been clear that getting order number 2023 out was a priority of his. And so while the entire commission works together to study uh, what updates to existing procedures may be needed, the ultimate final rule process is really guided by the chairman and their priorities. That's fair. And my understanding and research leading up to the show is that there's four or five uh, commissioners and then one chairman within that group. Yeah. Five commissioners is a fully seated commission. Although, as you may have noticed in recent years, depending on term ending dates and reconfirmations and, and even nominations from the president that have lagged behind some of those vacancies, the commission's often sat at three or four commissioners. But a, a number of the commissioners, both current and former, have said publicly that the commission functions best when it has all five. And so I think that's something that those of us who work in energy law, energy regulation like to see is the ability to have five commissioners because not only does it lead to stronger unanimous orders on rulemakings and general adjudications, but it also gives a little bit more room for, for compromise and for really working out some of the nuances of these issues. As you saw with order 2023, um, you know, all four commissioners voted in favor of that order, but through their con concurrences, you can see that they may have had different policy priorities or different uh, conclusions and different parts of what they were approving. Yeah, and I'll emphasize this again in part two. It was I, I thought it was very impressive that this ended up being uh, a 4-0 vote, but you should definitely go read the concurrences because that's where you see the commissioners start to have their own opinions and really they kind of, where they get to shine and you get to see all the interesting nuances and what might happen in the future. Definitely. And for anyone who doesn't know, what is a concurrence? Concurrence is a yes vote. A concurrence is saying that I conclude in the ultimate outcome of this order or this rule, but I have either slightly different reasoning or I have other uh, facts or considerations that I want to introduce into the record, or I might, as Pam said, want to highlight areas for future work. But a concurrence, it's important mm -hmm. to remember, is a full yes vote. It's nothing short of a normal uh, agreement. Yes, and. Yes, and. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> okay. It's the um... stand-up comedy of orders. Yes, and here's 15 pages of my opinion. <laughs> I mean, hey, if the mic's turned on. Um, so kind of wrapping up part one here, um, CC, could you help us understand, like, I think a lot of people trying to get in, maybe trying to help with this problem, you know, from many angles are curious, like, what are the biggest problems kind of understood or explained in a simple way with the current interconnection process? Definitely. So I think one of the largest challenges for all of the stakeholders that we talked about earlier, that's not just project developers and transmission providers, but also transmission customers and states, it's uncertainty. So the marginal cost of energy is falling. And, you know, that's something that we've talked about. There are more clean energy resources on the system. Solar and wind and other types of renewables tend to have a zero marginal cost or near zero marginal cost of operating. Um, and with that marginal cost of energy falling, more projects are operating on thin margins. When they're looking to interconnect, let's say you have a new solar facility that's looking to interconnect, they're going to make some money from selling energy, and they have some fixed costs that need to be recovered through other means, whether it's by contracts or participation in a centralized capacity market. But if they're assigned really hefty transmission upgrades, network upgrades, that's going to cut into their profitability and may even mean that it doesn't make financial sense for them to interconnect. And so dealing with this uncertainty, and especially dealing with uncertainty around network upgrade costs, is a really important part of making sure that new resources can be hooked up to the system. Um, and for transmission providers, this cascade of generators withdrawing from the queue not only generated just an unmanageable number of restudies, but also led to cost allocation problems. I think we teed this up or hinted at this at least a few minutes ago. But if you, for some reason, were uh, in a queue and you hadn't been assigned many network upgrades because someone right in front of you was going to build an addition to the system, but they withdrew from the queue and they essentially took their money with them, you might be hit with that upgrade cost, which you weren't anticipating. And you may have now been further into the process of requesting your interconnection, and it may not make sense for you to go forward. And so when I say cascading restudies, it's because when one person pulls out, if you're dealing with each generator in turn one by one, then when their costs are pushed down to the next person in line, it can cause many different people behind them to pull out as well. And that leads to uncertainty, of course, for those folks who are interconnecting, 
but also for the transmission providers who are honestly doing doing a lot of work, doing the lion's share of the work here to continually restudy the topology of their system to determine where there's existing headroom and define a network upgrade cost. And if that's changing every time someone pulls out, then it creates almost an impossibly long process for them. Yeah, thank you for walking us through that. Would you say then, just to restate, right, um, that uncertainty and then kind of the unanticipated like network or project costs that come from it are definitely like two areas. And then the third is just given how that process plays out with uncertainty and then people like pulling out, not pulling out, things like that. It just creates a lot of work for the transmission providers and operators. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good way to summarize it, right? Uncertainty and cost, uncertainty and timing, but then you're right, it comes all down to this idea of, of the length of time it takes to get from submitting that request to actually reaching commercial operations. So all of the delays kind of become their own problem at a certain time, at a certain time. Yeah, for sure. I'm trying to think there's like, obvious, you know, like cascade effect, maybe um, ripple effect, like whatever you want to say. Um, okay, so just like, so we know, that's the conclusion of part one, where we talked about FERC and in connection at a high level. And now we're going to move on to part two, which is where we're going to focus on FERC order 2023 and kind of some forward looking ideas and brainstorms the group might have. Wait, can I actually make one last point or of course. comment? That's also a question. So tell me if I'm yeah. wrong. Um, when you think about the amount of uncertainty associated with generators withdrawing and um, the amount of time you might spend in the queue and where you'll end up in the queue and all, all the uncertainty that that would cause you as a company and a business or as a project developer, that probably really limits the type of projects that can get built too. Because the only people then that can submit projects are those that have the capital on hand to deal with that uncertainty. Yeah, that's a really great point. I think that's changing a little bit and I'm definitely not a finance expert. I'm sure there are folks you could bring on the show who can talk a little bit more about this, but um, there are essentially some of these uh, delays that become barriers to project development. And it means that you have to have a lot of working capital in order to both build these projects and to withstand the you know, expected delays that come up at this point, as well as to maybe put, put up more money or at least more collateral to cover uh, unexpected upgrade costs that you may need to pay. So yeah, I think I think your point is right that typically if you're a larger project developer with deeper pockets, you're gonna have a better chance of withstanding some of the uncertainty that was present in the one by one process than you would if you're a small kind of mom and pop developer. Yeah, and like, you know, you made some comments before about like kind of standardizing things and driving more like certainty in the process to try and like Low, like raise the floor I think is a good way to talk about it and like let more people access the grid right um, from like an interconnection standpoint because yeah I mean it's not ideal I think at minimum to say like you know okay if you have deep pockets then you can interconnect but otherwise you know it's kind of a hit or miss process like great if we can make it more certain definitely and I guess one other point that's important to note is that it's not just certainty having these standardized procedures it's also essentially removing the ability for transmission providers to discriminate. And we want to believe the best in everyone, right? But if you're a transmission provider and you have your own resources maybe that are interconnecting onto your system, especially in the parts of the country that aren't restructured where there are more vertically integrated utilities, part of the reason that 2003 and then after it 845 and now 2023 were put forward is to make sure that everyone's playing by the same rules and that if you own a transmission system that you have public, publicly available transparent procedures that any generator can follow to get connected onto your grid. And then the flip side of that is as a transmission provider that you follow those, those procedures in a non-discriminatory way. And what that means is that you process the interconnection requests, you conduct studies, and you sign uh, you execute or sign interconnection agreements with third party, uh, third party power plants in the same way and on the same timeline that you would do for your very own affiliates. And so I think that's something to always keep in mind in the back of your head when you're thinking about energy is that there are those uh, competition and maybe sometimes anti-competitive urges. And so a lot of the things that FERC does to regulate and state public utility commissions do to regulate is to remove both the opportunities and the incentives for any preferential treatment. Yeah, I mean, it's the real world. I, I'm almost thinking about like, you know, every market is different, of course, but like to the extent that you can make the... Um, across all market, like playbook the same. Um, yeah. That's like, helpful in allowing more people to 
actually be able to get their arms around it. Definitely, but we won't say standard market design because I'm sure there are people who are still haunted by that from the early 2000s. Yeah, I've only been here since 2020, so forgive any ignorance or uh, things I'm stepping on that are sensitive topics. We at a high level have talked about the challenges to interconnection. Um, I'm sure lots of people have lots of opinions or, you know, that they document in their concurrences or otherwise to improve interconnection. Um, so I think, um, can you provide a summary of like what actually is being improved in 2023? I can do my best. And I know Pam said that there would be some, uh, some sources that are shared. I know there are a couple of law firms who've done a really good job of this. I think Rocky Mountain Institute has done a couple job good, has done a very good job of this and, uh, as we've all talked about, the commissioner statements can highlight some of the main changes. But for me, I can organize these into a few categories. Um, one is that the overarching theme is that order number 2023 requires certain new procedures to improve the efficiency of interconnection. Efficiency is the main focus. And there are a few different ways that the order goes about that. One is by requiring the use of a first ready, first serve process. What that means is there's no holding your place in line indefinitely and you can't sit in the queue if you're not ready to move forward with uh, conducting some of the further studies and eventually moving to the, to the stage of interconnection. And we call that commercial readiness, and that can be demonstrated in a number of different ways, not only by signing certain agreements, but by putting up deposits uh, as collateral, and commercial readiness is a real focus of order number 2023. And then the second part of that efficiency and using the first ready, first serve process is that Order number 2023 requires that all transmission providers use cluster studies. What that means is that groups of generators are studied together, not one by one. And the cost of upgrading the transmission system to accommodate their interconnection are shared among the different generators in the group. And the cost allocation of those upgrades can vary. It's been a real subject of debate and order 2023 offers really detailed guidance on that cost allocation. But I think at a high level, what's important to know is that the costs are shared and it removes some of the uncertainty that we've focused on about whether you're gonna be lucky and get a low cost upgrade or be unlucky and get a high cost upgrade. And then I'd say the third major overarching part of improving efficiency is on the transmission provider side. It's that order number 2023 establishes binding deadlines and pretty substantial financial penalties for transmission providers who may not, if they don't meet the deadlines that are in the order. And that's for a few different reasons. One is just simply to encourage their staffing up, right? A number of transmission providers, I, I will say they have a lot on their plates right now. They're trying to do a lot to manage their changing system while operating the system on a second by second basis, right? They have a, they have a really heavy lift, but the lack of finding deadlines or substantial penalties may have led to transmission providers not prioritizing completing these key studies on time and getting answers back to interconnecting generators. And so one focus of the order is to essentially raise the stakes and to make sure that transmission providers are allocating all of the resources that they need to or hiring new people if they don't have enough currently to make sure that they can get through all of the studies that they're required to do by the deadlines that the order requires. No, that makes sense to me. If I could ask a quick question on that. Um, yeah. The penalties, like not all transition providers are the same. Like if I understand it correctly, like ISOs and RTOs are one example of a transmission provider, but then there's also, I would say like utilities and restructured or yep. um, regulated markets. Um, do you think the penalties are still, and it's okay if like you don't have a fair answer for this, but like are the penalties like interesting and enticing enough for like both cohorts of transmission providers there? Or do you think like one being a nonprofit and one being you know, like an IOU, um, they, they kind of have different pocketbooks and different senses of what's important for them financially. That's a really interesting question. The penalties are pretty substantial. And so, as you mentioned, there are some large transmission providers and some smaller transmission providers. And this is where I don't remember exactly, right, whether they're the same or not, but I think they're uniform penalties. It's a certain number of dollar amount okay. per day of delay. But essentially, uh, they do have different pockets and they also do have different cost structures. And so this is something that Commissioner Christie actually highlighted in his concurrence, that RTOs and ISOs, which are nonprofit organizations uh, that are funded by their stakeholders, their customers, um, yeah. may not have the same incentive to 
exceed their processes based on these financial penalties. In theory, they could pay pretty hefty financial penalties and just pass those costs on to their transmission customers. And that in and of itself is a cost shift, right? From the interconnecting yeah. generators who need the studies to transmission customers who may not be making any changes at all. And so that's something to keep in mind too. And it's kind of a broader theme of what to consider moving forward is, are there ways that beyond order number 2023, the cost allocation between interconnecting generators and transmission providers, and then those transmission providers customers can be modified so that the people who are benefiting from the studies are paying, or in the case of transmission providers who are behind the eight ball, the people who are causing the delays are actually penalized in a meaningful way. The transmission providers though, um, <clears throat> that, are in non-restructured areas, could could they still rate base? I don't know. The I mean, yeah. the penalties I wouldn't be rate baseable. This is like a sidebar. The penalties can't be rate yeah. baseable because it's not an investment or an asset of the utility. In a, if anything, okay. it would be an O&M. So it would be in that O part of the rate case. And that's usually a fixed negotiated amount. That's an estimate, right? And so if, if they're delayed a number of years, they could then assume that they'll continue to be delayed to the same extent in the future and they can ask for an amount of that money in their next rate case, you know, as part of their overall revenue requirement. But I wouldn't be surprised if it came down to study delays, if a state PUC would force them to allocate some of those costs to their shareholders instead, not give them the full amount in their revenue requirement. But I think all of that gets a lot more into state retail rate making and I can't give you a solid answer on it. No, I was just saying that's like a very interesting question, I think. The cost allocation issues are the ones that I'm most interested in because I think it's really tricky to figure out how you can get a nonprofit or someone who passes through these costs to actually have a meaningful reason to change their procedures. And I think the deadlines are part of it, that theoretically, if a, if a transmission provider was just consistently failing to meet deadlines, they would be non-compliant with a FERC order. That could be the subject of an enforcement action and that could carry its own penalties. But I would be shocked if uh, the commission really wanted to pursue that. Obviously, I have no personal, um, you know, insight into it, but I, I'm curious. You know, beyond beyond steep financial penalties, which the transmission provider may or may not pay itself, I don't really know what else you do to try to encourage them to speed up these studies. And I do want to recognize, again, as I said earlier, they have a lot going on. The interconnection is a big piece of their work, but it's not everything. They're operating real-time energy markets. They're balancing on a second basis the frequency of the grid. I mean, they have a lot going on. And so I think one one challenge and one reason they've been cut a lot of slack in the past is that they are the experts on managing and operating their own systems. But it, it did get to a certain point with the queue delays and a lot of the backlogs that I think the commission decided it needed to step up. And that even though transmission providers uh, may be doing, saying they were doing the best they could, that the imposition of some more standardized procedures and deadlines could uh, encourage them to move things along. One quick question on commercial readiness. Uh, and this is just me not having a very strong background in project development. So maybe this technically should have gone in the first part. But when we talk about wh whether a project is ready, is, is that on a scale of intent to make a project to a wind turbine exists and is on the ground? Or what, like, what are they expecting? Well, when I say commercial readiness, and I think this is a good thing to clarify, I'm really talking about financial readiness, right? Mm -hmm. I definitely will not get into the engineering of what it takes to build a wind turbine or, or 200 <laughs> wind turbines, but um, I can say that what Order 2023 sets out in terms of commercial readiness is what type of financial deposit and other showings, whether it's site control or a necessary permits or approvals from your state commission, you know, what boxes do you need to check before you can move to the next stage of the interconnection process? And that's what um, FERC is setting out some standards for. And so that might not, that might be a certain percentage of site control. I think order 2023 has that you have to have 90% site control before you can move to, to the cluster study process. And then separately that you need to post certain financial collateral to show that you are not just invested, but that you have some skin in the game. And some of those deposits are, are forfeitable if you pull out of the queue. And as you get later into the interconnection process, a larger portion is forfeited. And so all of these checks are supposed to work together to make sure that the interconnecting generators are serious about planning to achieve commercial operations, that they're not taking speculative queue positions and beyond their intentions, that they actually have the money to back this up, that these are serious projects that 
are, are going to be added to the system and therefore are worth the transmission providers taking the time to include them in the cluster studies and to allocate them costs. Yeah, and for me, like if people are really curious about the details, because no doubt there's a lot of details, um, both in the summaries and then if you really get crazy, look at the order, like they do have like some very like specific and like tangible like commercial readiness requirements, which people can kind of look at to get a better feel for it. Definitely. That's a great reminder. What we've heard is that some people have already implemented some of these actions, some people being some transmission providers, I guess is the right word to say. Um, and so I guess you see if you could just like speak to that and then like, um, yeah, I guess just starting there, like, you know, some people have done this, but we're really raising the floor here, right? Absolutely. So I can just give a brief overview. I know that I, I did some quick digging and found out that KISO, MISO, NISO, and TJM had already submitted proposals and in some cases were already using a cluster study process. Um, so that represents California, the Midwestern part of the U.S., New York State, and the Mid-Atlantic out to Chicago for those people who are listening who may not be as familiar with those regions. Um, and I think one thing that's worth pointing out is that FERC, as you said, tends to raise the floor, right? This is not an untested process. Cluster studies is something that has been done before, that other RTOs and ISOs have done successfully for a number of years in some cases. NISO has had a class year process for a long time. And I think that's one reason that the commission may feel confident taking such definitive action is that they're not requiring something untested. This is a process that not only has been in place and used successfully by certain regions of the country, but um, has also been shown, at least in those regions, to contribute to re relieving some of the, of the interconnection queue backlog. So I think one way I like to think about it is that FERC is likely never going to be the first mover in an area. And that's for good reason. I mean, if FERC came out and required transmission providers to do something that was untested and maybe wasn't feasible in the end, then that might set back uh, energy policy and, and, in this case, interconnection to reforms a number of years. But I think by waiting to see what works in certain parts of the country, and then, as we've talked about, raising the floor, making sure that once something has been shown to work, that every part of the country can implement that and can use it to more efficiently process their interconnection requests. I think that's really one of the benefits of having a federal regulator is to be able to provide that consistency and, and whether the transmission providers want it or not to spread some of those best practices across the country. And one, one question I had related to this to pull on this like as a little bit more, um, would it be fair to say that like this practice of kind of seeing what works in different pockets of the country, like maybe at the state level, maybe at the market level, and then like using that, given that it works like federally, is something that has been done before or is done often? Yeah, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but I think there are some recent examples that we can really look to. So. I think order number 841 was a really good example. There had been regions of the country where energy storage was being deployed and deployed effectively, but was running into certain barriers uh, where energy storage resources weren't getting compensated for the full range of services that they were technically capable of providing. And there were some regions that were starting to experiment and were um, you know, calling energy storage negative generation, or were trying to figure out how to solve some of these problems of getting getting these energy storage resources paid for the electrons that they're putting onto the grid. And I think FERC served kind of a dual role when thinking about energy storage. One was a convening authority that the commission organized a series of technical conferences that brought people together from different regions of the country to talk about what was working for them or areas for future improvement. And then the commission used its rulemaking authority to, um, to, direct, to direct certain regions to comply. And I think one thing that we saw in the energy storage context, at least, was a little bit more flexibility than we see when we're thinking about interconnection. And part of that comes from having a new technology. I mean, what 841 required was that energy storage resources be able to participate and what that means for transmission providers. And in this case, it was for independent system operators and regional transmission organizations only, was that they develop a participation model. But that participation model was really more guideline-based than prescriptive and the commission left a lot of the details to the compliance process and so i think that was one example was a little different than interconnection kind of along the same lines order number 2022 took a similar approach when it talked about requiring transmission uh, excuse me independent system operators and regional transmission organizations again to develop a participation model for aggregations of distributed energy resources 
it was uh, the same sort of requiring a structure, but leaving the implementation details to a case-by-case -case basis. And I think you can see shades of that in 2023 with interconnection. Interconnection, we know a little bit more about where the order is a little more prescriptive because there are these procedures like first ready, first, first ready, first serve processes and cluster studies that have been broadly successful across the country. But there is still some room for flexibility. And this is something I wanted to mention earlier, which is that the ISOs and RTOs in complying with order number 2023 still can take advantage of what's called an independent entity variation. What that means is that there is some level of deference given to the fact that these RTOs and ISOs are independent organizations that operate their grids and have uh, some level of expertise and also um, facility with the interconnection process themselves. And if there are things that work in certain parts of the country for one reason or another that may not work everywhere, the ISOs and RTOs are free to propose and explain to FERC why, why their alternative is actually comparable. Um, this is something that can get a little confusing, so maybe it's worth touching on here. The ISOs and RTOs have one standard independent entity variation where as long as their proposed option is comparable uh, or equal to what the order requires, it may get approved by FERC. If you're outside of an ISO or RTO region and you're a transmission provider in that other non-restructured part of the country, you do have a higher standard. You have to show that your alternative is sufficient. Maybe last thing I just want to like say on this section, um, and then maybe we can move on. Um, I just think this is very cool to see that things that work in kind of smaller geographies can get adopted as like good models. And so if anyone says like, why should I really like get active in my local community and like get a new legislation passed just for my city or just for my state or something like that? I think the point is, if you can prove that it works, then it's a model that kind of maybe the state can adopt or it could even get adopted at the you know wholesale market or the federal level. And so I think like personally, you know, one, help your community because it's good for your community and it's the right thing to do. But, you know, these things can like be proof points that can eventually get adopted at broader scale, which I think is really cool to see. Yeah, I would just add Definitely. that. Um, I would just add that, you know, this is where urban planners, this is where we get our best practices from from real things that real communities do. So this uh, podcast is called Intermediate uh, with the DER being distributed energy resources. So what are some ways that you think that this order will impact uh, DERs? Yeah, that's a great question. When I looked back at order number 2023 before this podcast, I realized that most of the reforms or at least many of the reforms are focused on the interconnection of large generators. But order 2023 does direct transmission providers to modify their small generator interconnection procedures. So those are the procedures used by generators that are less than 20 megawatts in capacity. Um, and that those modifications should allow for consideration of alternative transmission technologies and some other discrete changes. Um, order number 2023 also requires transmission providers to maintain a publicly available heat map of available transmission capacity. And this is something that I think system modelers at least are getting pretty excited about. I'm not a system modeler. I'm also somewhat excited about this because even though some people who've criticized the order have said that this is pretty heavy lift for transmission providers, that they have enough to do, they shouldn't have to build and maintain these heat maps. This is really kind of a key for distributed energy resource developers because these heat maps are essentially treasure maps to show which parts of the grid are underutilized. And if you're if you have a low budget, especially because you've got a small resource or a number of small resources, if you have a heat map that's being updated, if not in real time, at least relatively frequently, that can show you where there's headroom on the system, well, that's really a key to unlock some easy, low-cost interconnection. Um, and small generators typically have their own interconnection procedures that are dependent on the distribution utility and their systems. But I think the heat map could be a really powerful tool if you're developing distributed energy resources in figuring out where you should locate those resources, not only to make sure they can get hooked up to the system, but also to give them a chance at, at making money, at relieving congestion and at being in a location of the grid where they're really providing value to the system. Yeah, I'm also very excited about the heat maps. I did see that note, Woo. and I'm curious to see what that looks like. Go heat map. I'm, I'm yeah, so excited that... for the heat map, too. I'm sure Energy Twitter will be very excited as well to have more things to screenshot. Oh, my gosh. I hope Energy yeah. Twitter survives to the era of the heat map. 
energy X. We're in trouble with this. I'm assuming it'll be like the the uh, the heat maps with prices. I hope it is. Blue mastodon sky threads. Um, and then without saying like specific names, uh, just to be neutral, I know there's some startups that are like kind of working on heat map type products as well for like project developers and people developing projects to use, which I also think is really cool. And I love that. That's great. Folks can name names in the comments. I'd love to see those. Um, so we love heat maps. I think we could talk about them for a while. Do you think that's like the main takeaway for DERs or do you think there's other like key areas? You know, I'm not really sure. I think honestly, and this is something we'll start to talk about just in the last part of the episode. I think yeah. one thing that I want to emphasize is this process is just beginning. Um, we can talk specific dates and compliance, but one thing that I saw from following uh, the compliance process for orders 841 for storage and 845, which was the last round of interconnection procedures, is that there are some questions that uh, transmission providers haven't figured out yet, and even FERC may not have figured out yet. And only when those issues are raised by transmission providers who are attempting to comply or by stakeholders whose uh, develop projects that are under development are affected, uh, will we start to iron out some of the details? So I think maybe I'll put a pin in that for implementation details. I think we'll start to see pretty soon what parts of this final rule um, DER aggregators are interested in debating and whether some of those proposals make it into um, FERC orders in the form of compliance orders on compliance filing. Yeah, and I think to touch on that, because this maybe is intuitive, but like isn't totally obvious unless you think about it for a second here. Um, and we are like, so an order gets issued, right? Or whatever process, like whatever step in the process we are today, like, could you yeah. raise that up one level and just let people understand like the full process from, or like the life cycle of a FERC order or like whatever the right way is to say that. Oh man. Yeah. I'll do, I'll do two parts. So I think it makes sense maybe to start with going backwards. Um, the way that a rulemaking is initiated is typically by a notice of inquiry, an NOI, and that, that can be a number of years before the final rule gets issued. And after the notice of inquiry, the commission takes comments in many cases and will start to uh, scope out the range of problems that it may want to address in a single rulemaking. And the next step is to issue either a notice of, of proposed rulemaking, a NOPER, or in some cases, for really big rules, there will be even a step before that, an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, an ANOPER. And through either the ANOPER-NOPER process or the straight NOPER process, the commission will set out the range of possible issues that will be addressed in the final rule. And, and that's a somewhat binding range. There are legal reasons for that. But essentially, the stakeholder community needs to be put on notice that these are the things that the commission is considering changing. And if you have comments to submit on this range of issues, submit them now. And typically, because that NOPER has to be almost entirely inclusive, um, the only changes from the NOPER to the final rule stage tend to be determining which issues not to take up yet. Because again, you can't put in a new issue in a final rule without notice, without adequate notice to the stakeholder community and an opportunity to comment on those changes. And so the progression from the NOPER to the final rule uh, will essentially just be a removal of certain issues that the commission has decided based on stakeholder comments are either not right for consideration or the commission needs to gather more information before they're ready to move forward. And then you get to the stage just before where we are now, which is the issuance of the final rule, which happened over the summer. And that's when the final requirements are written down and the commission explains that the requirements will go into effect at a certain date in the future and that all of those implicated, in this case, transmission providers across the country will need to submit compliance filings to show either that they're already in compliance with the rules or that they're making changes to comply with the rules and laying out what those changes are. And so that's really where we are right now. Um, for compliance, the rule was published in the Federal Register in September, and it becomes effective in early November, which is just a bit of a quirk of official effective dates. Um, but we're really well on the way toward these rules being translated from prescriptions to actual policies and procedures, um, because compliance filings are due starting in February 2024. And the commission has signaled that it's interested in moving quickly through this process. Often final rules will give longer opportunities for compliance, maybe 120 or 180 days, but order number 2023 provided 90 days. And that is a pretty strong signal to transmission providers that commission's serious about changing these timelines and improving efficiency immediately. So 
That'll be interesting. I mean, complying with large final rules like order number 2023 often takes multiple rounds of compliance. That means that transmission providers will be submitting proposed tariff changes and FERC will be reviewing those changes and then telling them where, yes, you've achieved compliance or no, you're not there yet. Um, and that's gonna be an iterative process over the next couple of years. So I think it's just helpful to get a sense in terms of timing, how long this can all take. I don't remember exactly for order number 2023, but often this can be a process of three to five years total from scoping the notice of proposed rulemaking, trimming the issues into a final rule, issuing the final rule, and then processing several rounds of compliance. I think that compliance for order number 845 only wrapped up a year or two ago. So that was issued in 2018. It may have taken three years to get through to the point where every transmission provider was compliant. And I think we could probably expect something similar for 2023. Yeah, going off that, I'll also add that regarding DER, DER aggregations, you know, it, just because order 2222 became final and passed and whatnot, they're still going through compliance for that. Yeah, that's so a great just point. because just because, you know, you can have DER aggregations now doesn't mean that everyone's complied. We don't necessarily know how they will comply. And so therefore, we don't necessarily know how that will interact with this order. Great point. This is where we bring up toasters again. Just because everyone's working on compliance doesn't mean your toaster can participate in the grid. <laughs> exactly. I love toast. Um, so I guess we're certainly making progress here um with order 2023 but can we sort of get a feel for like what's next and maybe what the key open areas are that might be kind of improved upon from here on yeah definitely i think this is one of the most interesting areas for discussion so when we think about interconnection procedures and what needs to happen to continue to facilitate more efficient interconnection i think one thing that's really important is to remember that interconnection and transmission planning are really interrelated. And you can look to some of the commissioner's separate statements for hint at next steps beyond the scope of order 2023. And a couple of those issues really do focus on this transmission interconnection interface. So one thing that order number 2023 did is it, it declined to require any additional integrated transmission planning or to require reforms to how transmission providers allocate the cost of new transmission. But this, this issue of transmission planning and especially you know, more thorough transmission planning is something that both Commissioner Clements and Commissioner Christie flagged in their concurrences. And one other issue that's related is interregional transmission development. It's been something that FERC has talked about, at least individual commissioners have talked about over the last couple of years. And I think those who work in academia, those who post on Energy Twitter have, have talked about interregional transmission planning and development as kind of this holy grail, whether it's the macro grid that you see or whether it's just making um, you know, more efficient processes to consider transmission lines or transmission upgrades that can benefit more than one system. Um, that's an area that is outside of the scope of this order and probably still a focus for the commission, but something that because it's by its nature interregional, I think we'll have to be a more collaborative solution rather than maybe something so top down. Um, but there are also a couple issues that I found really interesting from the commissioner's concurrences. One of them was that uh, order 2023 declined to change the funding requirements for upgrades on affected systems. So uh, affected systems are transmission providers, but we can think of them as kind of the unlucky third parties here who get affected. So for example, if you have a new power plant that's trying to interconnect in Virginia, but it interconnects in Southern Virginia, the transmission provider could be Dominion and the, um, the interconnecting generator could be trying to participate in the PJM market. But because of the physical, physical topology of the transmission in that area, there may be electrons from this new generator in Virginia that actually will affect the system in North Carolina operated by a neighboring transmission provider. And so that North, Carolina, North Carolinian uh, utility that owns its own transmission system may also need to build upgrades to facilitate the interconnection of a generator nearby. And, and that's an affected system. And there are different rules for different parts of the country right now that govern both what affected systems have to do, uh, whether they have to do those actions by any sort of date certain, and then how those upgrades, if they build them, get paid for, whether it's passed along to the interconnection customer, whether it's refunded by the neighboring region. That's an area that Commissioner Christie highlighted as being a potential area for further inquiry and maybe further rulemaking. And that's something that I, I would love to see and especially love to learn more about. And then kind of along the same lines about um, you know, shifting costs and who pays, 
again, both Commissioner Christie and Commissioner Clements, but especially Commissioner Christie emphasized that uh, order number 2023 declined to address certain other cost allocation issues. Again, this, this challenge, perennial challenge of who pays and is it the person who caused the cost or is it the person who benefits from the infrastructure? That's something that I think will keep energy regulators busy for a very long time. Cool. Um, Cece, thank you so much for joining us. Like this has been awesome for me, especially like as someone not as familiar with policy and FERC and regulatory things like this. Like I feel like you allowed me, um, and Pam as always allows me to engage, um, even though I'm outside of my comfort zone and I've learned a ton and I hope other people did. So thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you both for having me. It's always great to talk interconnection. And I think outside of our comfort zones is something we can all have in common, right? These are pretty weedy rules. And I think unless you're an interconnection engineer, it's going to be hard to know exactly what all of it means, but it's great to talk about it and to try to try to wade through some of that together. Thanks for listening to this installation of the Intermediate Podcast with CC Coffee and our hosts, James Gordy and Pamela Wildstein. I'm Ben Hilborn. And you can find us anywhere you'd like to download your podcasts, such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on the web at intermediate.com. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, feel free to email us at intermediate at gmail.com. See you on the next one.